Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. My name's Mike Calvin. I'm joined by Susie Rack of The Guardian, Katie Wyatt of The Daily Telegraph, and Glenn Moore, women's football columnist for World Soccer. So, is America the land of opportunity? Mark Skinner has left Birmingham to join Orlando Pride as head coach. Six of the nine coaches in the National Women's Soccer League are English. The game there is well marketed, but not without its issues. The US national team, unbeaten in 2018, lost in France at the weekend. Now, the professional game is in its infancy here. Can it afford to lose bright young talents like Skinner? So, Katie, Mark talks about Orlando being Birmingham writ large, you know, a very similar type mm. of club, but just a bigger scale. Will his philosophy translate? You know, he talks about the player being alongside the person? I think ultimately, yeah, but how long it will take is something that is going to be the big question. I think the difficult thing for him is that at Birmingham, he didn't necessarily have a star in the team. Maybe he had Lucy Stanithorpe, for example, maybe, but you were looking at really a team that were kind of greater than the sum of its parts because of the way that he brought them together and the way that he got them to play and the way that he... Um, he talked a lot in his press conference at Orlando about how he had to get them to be comfortable with the idea of success and what success looked like mentally and not being the underdogs anymore. And I think testament to that is how many people have come out and said, you know, it's a top four now, not just a top three because of the stuff that he's done there. I think the difficult thing is potentially it's, you know, we've mentioned about Alex Morgan and Marta, for example, they're bigger stars, bigger kettle of fish, it's going to be a completely different kind of culture um, where I think female footballers have different expectations in America to what they have over here um, in terms of just lots of different things, pay, wages, success, things like that. So I think there the cultural differences will probably be the bigger challenge for him. Mm. Give us a, an insight, Glenn, if you could, please, into the, the nature of that league. You know, we've talked about the six English coaches being over there. Only nine clubs, but how competitive? What's the scale of it? Well, it's more competitive than most leagues in that because of the draft system and so on, there's a certain amount of equalisation in American sport, though a couple of teams have begun to pull away from the rest, particularly the Portland Thorns. So you're in a situation where you have got the Thorns who are bringing in 
15, 20,000. They're the best supported women's club team in the world, easily. Uh, and they've been very successful. They've got an English manager, uh, Mark Parsons. Then they've got Carolina Courage, who are a relatively new franchise, but they moved from another place. One of these things we see in American sport with teams moving cities. Uh, again, Paul Riley, who's just signed a new contract, hasn't he? Yes, and he's staying on, and he's done very well there. But the league is slightly uneven. Then you've got a team like Sky Blue, who are struggling financially. Uh, they had lots of problems last year with facilities, not even showers available for players after training. The number two draft pick uh, last week has basically refused to go there and she's signed for Melbourne instead. I mean, we'll see what happens when that season finishes. They have her rights, as it were, Sky Blue, but if she doesn't want to play in America, then she can go somewhere else. So you have got this unevenness and there's been problems with facilities, uh, games being played on baseball pitches, uh, pitches that are too small. Uh, Hope Sutter has been quite vociferous talking about it. So there is this variation in standard there. I mean, the main problem they've got is this is the third attempt to produce a professional league in America. And the main thing they're trying to do is just, just hang in there, really. Uh, so this is the sixth year. They're talking about expanding maybe next year. Uh, there's interest, funny enough, from Barcelona setting up a team in, on the West Coast, and that really would be a big groundbreaking move. But uh, so they, they're trying not to go too fast too quickly. And one of the things about the league, a lot of the players are subsidised because their salaries are paid by the national teams, so the American national team, the Canadian and the Mexican. But particularly the American players, so they're all sort. So they all get quite good salaries, but the basic pay rate for the non-international players isn't particularly good anywhere else in the world. Mm. How attractive an option, though, given all all that, is it for an, a young English coach to try and work in the States? Well, it depends where they want to work. I mean, the thing about the six English coaches in the US is at least two of them, I think, um, played football in the US. Um, so they they've kind of just continued their journey stateside. Um, it's definitely more attractive uh, in many senses to probably coach in the women's game in the US than the men's game compared to here. The bigger issue for me is the, the lack of women. Um, there's two women. One of them is Laura Harvey, who was at Birmingham and Arsenal and England youth teams. And we're not seeing enough women coaches come through in the States or here. That's a bigger issue for me. Good. Obviously, you've got the, the fact that football is so big here and we produce coaches, probably a better standard of coaches than they produce in the States generally, he means that this, it, it could be sort of inevitable that some find their place in the States. Mm. But since I mean, I spoke to Laura Harvey about the lack of female coaches there, and she said one, that one of the issues is there are a lot of good, well-paid coaching jobs in colleges mm. in America, and they're much more secure. Although the NWSL, by traditional standards, is relatively secure, three of the managers were fired out of the nine over the course of last year. So there's an insecurity that you don't get at college level. And lots of the good female coaches are in the college system and basically don't want to, she feels, don't want to make the move. Mm. That's the thing is, Title IX means that, that you've got that equalisation of sports funding at mm. college level that protects it. Like, if they didn't have Title IX, which guarantees the same amount of funding for men's and, and women's sports, that security wouldn't be there. We don't have that here. That's mm. a big difference. Any chance of that ever happening? <laughs> Equalisation of income. <laughs> um, Katie, you know, I noticed you did a, a, a piece with Tanya Roxterby. Mm. Is she the type of female coach who deserves maybe a... You know, she's doing well with Bristol City, but maybe a bigger role or just almost being nurtured a bit more by the system? Um, how do you mean nurtured by the system? What do you mean? In, in the way that, for instance, in the men's game, the LMA have masterclasses okay, of coaching. Yeah. In other words, almost education. Mm. I don't know. I mean, I think you'd have to sort of speak to her more specifically about where she sees her pathway being and her coaching journey being. I think she's very interesting in terms of the personal journey that she's had, but then also the coaching journey that she's had and the way that she's had 
kind of taken things from different areas and sort of brought them together to become the coach that she is. So psychology is really massive for her and a lot of things that didn't go into that piece. But when she talks about different types of threats and the way that you can control different things. So there's a lot of different um, pools that she kind of taps into to become the coach that she is. And I think potentially are we missing out on that in general I don't know I think they increasingly you are seeing managers even in the men's game talking about man management and Pochettino was quoting Alex Ferguson at the weekend about um, you know the importance of people behind it and you are seeing people sort of borrowing from different influences in terms of the pathway I'm not sure I mean it's kind of known that you can in the women's game get further up further quickly um, obviously we've seen Mark Sampson Phil Neville taking the England job with the kind of pace and ease that he wouldn't necessarily have if you were to apply for the men's England job whether she wants to be an international manager with a very different set of challenges is another question because I think that she's a sort of manager where she um, has a vision of a culture and she likes working with players intensely in day to day and I know that international management's obviously very different with you will see them for more intense bursts but months and months apart I'm not sure if she's the manager who would like that because she seems to relish the a very young team that she's got average age of 22 and she seems to relish watching them develop and watching them grow up and and change and become more independent and thinking about things in a certain way on the pitch I'm not sure she would get the same kind of satisfaction if she were to take on an international role. Mm. Are coaches Glenn more naturally empathetic in the women's game you know I've spoken at length to Emma Hayes and she comes across very much as emotionally engaged, empathetic, emotionally intelligent. Um, possibly, though, you know, as Kate said, it's coming in much more in the men's game now. Players can no, no longer be bullied in the same way they used to be able to. I mean, they have that financial power. Mm. So in the men's game, they'd better stand up and go. So you have to work with them much more. I think that's been seen more and more in the men's game, particularly younger managers coming through. But even old, you know, the old traditional you know, dinosaurs, I mean, Neil Warnock's career is mainly about getting players to perform better than they are. Yeah, and all about bonding the group and so on. Yeah, so the old dogs do learn new tricks as well. Um, so in that respect, I think maybe different, maybe players different gender react differently in some cases, but I think it's a stereotype, both types. I mean, there will be differences within both genders where some react, it's the old cow the stick, you know, you have the art of management is to an extent knowing which ones want the kick at the backside and which ones need the arm around the shoulder. Mm. And it isn't a one-size-fits-all. Mm. You know, Kate, Matt Beard's come back from Boston to work you know, with West Ham. There's always going to be a challenge setting up a new club like that. How's he doing? Uh, it's difficult to say. I think it's a very interesting club because when the way that they got into the league, obviously when the FA announced they were going to reform it and everyone had to be full-time and then they suddenly stepped up out of nowhere and then Jack Sullivan, who's only 19, and took charge and everyone was sort of saying, oh, I'm not sure about this, is it a, your player thing kind of thing? So I think it's there's a lot of different things about them that are very interesting. I think, there's, um, I think that they were under a certain amount of pressure perhaps to justify being there, but I know that they are taking it very seriously and financially. They're one of the only clubs in the league. There was only five or six of them that provide private medical insurance for their players. So they were quoted a lot of money to to get that over the line. And then, But then obviously that solves a lot of problems with players not having to wait on the NHS and things like that. Um, I know it's been disappointing in some aspects with some of the results that they've had, but you know, their performances against Arsenal, for instance, being one of the only few teams that have been able to keep them at bay or give them a bit of a fright. So I think, yeah, there's room for improvement, but I think in the main, they're doing OK. Mm. Getting in Matt was a bit of a coup as well. Yes. Mm. You know, he's, he won the league twice. He ended Arsenal's dominance of uh, 
what, nine season or something that they run the title on the trot and he won it twice with Liverpool. He came back because Boston folded, which again shows the fragility of, of the kind of the US uh, professional league. But so getting him was a bit of a coup because he is a, a very, very good manager, mm-hmm. a very experienced. And they've, they've had a lot of difficult injuries recently. You know, they've only been able to field one or two fit subs on their bench in recent games. So they've brought in a few players in January to try and alleviate that a bit. But I think they're doing quite well considering. Yeah, there's no danger of relegation. What do you make of what's going on in Scotland, Glenn? You know, you've looked at Kevin Murphy's gone to Hearts from being Manchester City's TD. Uh, Celtic are talking about having full-time team. And interestingly, that decision was actually almost commercially driven. Scotland seems to be sort of stirring. Yes, it was some way behind. I mean, qualifying for the World Cup's been absolutely massive and it's clearly been a big kickstart. I think it's a bit like the situation in Holland quite recently. You know, the fact the men's team is such in the doldrums, then you, suddenly you crash onto a bit of success with the women's team. It does help. It's certainly helped in Holland uh, very much so. So I think that's made a big impact. The yeah, there has been massive underinvestment there and quite a lot of attitudes to try and come across. I mean, even relatively recently, you know, uh, well-known media people were saying why are they even playing on men's grounds for the Scotland team and stuff like that. But it's had quite a lot to overcome. I mean, it's interesting, interesting we'll see what happens with Glasgow Rangers because obviously there's the very successful Glasgow City team, which is non-sectarian. Yeah, and it forged its own mark and played a lot in Europe a lot and won a lot and Hibs are now coming through and become a good side. So it'll be interesting if the big clubs start to invest. I mean, clearly, you know, the money is there. You can go a long way very quick in the women's game financially to establish a good team very fast. So uh, a lot of things might happen, see how they get on in the summer. But I mean, having got qualified for the Euros two years ago and now the World Cup is a good back-to-back success. Because mm. it's interesting, you know, the Celtic decision was, was in part after a 9-0 defeat by Hibs, you know, mm. which is presumably something you don't do. Well, since in Mexico, where they've had this new league, and very quickly, some of the teams, it was almost compulsory. Every team in the major league had to have a team. And some of them took it seriously and some didn't. But very quickly, there were some quite heavy one-sided games. And they got pressure from supporters saying, these people are representing our club. We have to have a better team. Mm. You know, for the teams are getting hammered. And then all the clubs started taking it quite seriously. And the, um, the gates for the finals have been huge, 30,000, 40,000 gates. Big, proper, passionate Mexican support in stadia. Mm. Maybe not immediately, Katie, but in the sort of short term, maybe in the next five years, could you see a British Super League emerging? Oh, I think it's a difficult one. It's the same as can, when all this talk about should Celtic Rangers play in the men's Premier League that we've yeah. had, we get rears its head every so often. I don't know, it's a difficult one. I think... What my worry would be with Scotland is that obviously you're seeing Hearts um, making a big investment, Rangers have tripled their investment, Celtic going full-time. Is Are you going to see, like in the early days of the Super League, those few pulling away and the rest kind of dropping a little bit? That would be my concern. Um, in terms of British Super League, I think the FA will maybe be a little bit wary of fiddling with the format again because we have every few years we have changes and move to a winter league and then uh, everyone becoming full time so it's just constant upheaval constant changes and i think and would tra- it maybe tradi- be... they're traditionally sort of you know there's an antipathy towards the olympic team isn't mm, there really yeah so it's it's a difficult one to say whether they would be in a position to kind of rip up the league and start again depending on how it goes because i mean they wouldn't even um, induct man united in as a kind of late entry into the super league even though it would have um, made a lot of sense so i wonder if they're kind of going to stick with the format that they've got now full-time league but the fa are looking to move the super league on i mean they feel they're, they're getting mm. to a level their investment isn't going to be sufficient and they are looking have a sort of more standalone league in that respect i mean it strikes me as an obvious marketing potential without the 
Right, in the short term at least, the, the crowd problems, I know the police aren't that keen on the idea of Celtic Rangers playing in England every week. Um, well, it wouldn't be an issue with the women's game, mm. you would imagine. Uh, and in terms of marketing, you know, the cross-border stuff on a regular basis, and a differentiation from the men's game, like you, you certainly you see people thinking, could this be possible? Well, and that we are likely to see an Olympic team as well, yeah. I think, this time round. Yeah. You know, the, po the talk has been very positive about it, so... Yeah. Let's look at look at Scotland as, as a national team. You know, they lost in a friendly to Norway 3-1 last week. They're in England's group. What is the nature of their challenge going to be like? Partly depends on whether they can keep players fit because their starting 11 is extremely good, it's extremely strong. Um, and that's where they struggled at the Euros, is they had a lot of key players um, missing from that squad. Kim Little, the obvious one, but Emma Mitchell... Um, Jane Ross got injured in the first game. You know, there was a whole host of players uh, ruled out of that competition that really crippled them. But on paper, their 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 squad is is really good. I could see them challenging England. I like. I think if they are all fit and they click at the right time, then I think they've got the players that can do well in this tournament. I think they uh, are being written as the underdogs, but I don't think they're as much as. Underdogs, as a lot of people are assuming. Mm. Yeah, it's I, think a good draw. I think they're a very different beast to the team that they were um, at Euro 2017, right. when England just kind of brushed them aside without <laughs> a great deal of difficulty, and they were very, in that time, quite um, robust and generally hard to beat, despite the England scoreline. Whereas now you see they've got players that are very um, technical and very creative and not afraid to get the ball and do things with it. I mean, we were both at the um, mm. USA game and you saw them kind of not go toe to toe because obviously they lost, but it was very the scoreline didn't really do them. Just it was a lot closer, um, and then they could have. Really yeah, they mm. really good account of themselves. They seem to be really well coached. Mm. Definitely, I think they are. Yeah, I think Shelley Kerr, really, really fantastic ambassador for the game in Scotland, and I think that she knows what she wants out of them. And I think you know, as soon as she got the job, she took over obviously after Euro 2017. Even if she was announced before, she commissioned the big, massive technical review that's hundreds of pages long into, you know, what the culture is like and the way that they're playing. And then she kind of re redefined that with them and spoke with them, but then had a really clear vision of what she wanted to do. So I think she was definitely the right kind of appointment for them. And you can see in the development that they've had in the last two or three years. What it's a really good move that they got her in. Because I suppose the great attraction of the women's game, or one of the attractions, is the fact that you've almost got a clean sheet of paper that you can actually create your own culture from it in the way that obviously they've tried to do in Scotland. And I think the other thing is this whole idea of, look, we're involved in something bigger than we are. Erin uh, Cuthbert's talked about the World Cup and, you know, for Scotland, we are all role models. And here's someone who was, a, you know, a, a mascot back in the day and she feels that sort of collective responsibility towards the game. Is that one of the sort of USPs of the women's game? Yes, yeah, so, you know, players are in it because they like playing football, they want to be professional footballers, but that's a sort of a secondary thing, yeah. They, they, I think there's awareness that they are role models and they're, you know, representing, you know, they're showing the way and the, the struggles that they had, in some cases, being accepted and taken seriously. And then sort of show you can't be what you can't see, as the saying goes. Mm. Um, and uh, very much the case, I mean, the um, piece by Wendy Renard recently in the Players' Tribune about, you know, watching football on TV and seeing somebody in, you know, uh, Pinchon and thinking, that could be me. You know, these ideas that you couldn't possibly have done. The FA did something recently, I think there's a referee, wasn't there, a female referee, a line, line, line assistant referee, and this girl sort of was on the touchline saying, oh, look, daddy is a, you know, I could do that. Mm. So there is that element of being a role model. I think, you know, I think all three teams will get out of the group and should do well. I mean, it's an absolute great draw because there's one weak team, and the white Argentina, and the way the World Cup's set up, the four best-placed, third-place teams go through, 
and where you've got a team with four strong, a group with four strong teams, I think there's one in New Zealand, mm. Holland, there's four strong teams, they're all take points of each other. Mm. So they, that, that would be the group where two teams won't go through. So the, the teams where there's a weak team in it, you know, and the assumption that everyone beats that weak team, they still go through. How important is this Summer's World Cup to the game as a whole? Massive. I think uh, the effect of the 2015 World Cup and the 2012 Olympics showed the impact of, of big events in women's football. Everyone loves to get behind their national team in a big tournament and these are players that people can really buy into um, and I think that's what happened for the first time really at that 2015 World Cup is you start, players' names were starting to be, to become household names and that really kind of exploded the game domestically. The difference is, is no one was really prepared for that uh, the explosion after those in interest after those games there was no link back to the domestic game and there was no link to um, development and getting people involved. It wasn't in my home game, was it? About exactly, five months. Yeah. Mm. So the difference is is whether the FA are doing the groundwork now to prepare for or have been doing the groundwork enough to prepare for post. I think they've learned from that. But I mean, again, you can't get too cool. I mean. England winning the Women's Rugby World Cup. Yeah. Two years later, you know, a few years later, they had no contract even. For, so you quite often get uh, this sense of coalescing around a, a big event involving the country, but then it's how does that follow up? I mean, you know, the, Well, that's surely the, the, the role of the FA and is. any governing body is to say, right, OK, we've sparked the imagination, let's put something around that. So the terrestrial TV, that's the key thing. Look at the Ashes, you know, the, the great event, the Ashes yeah. series, series that here, then the games is biz of TV. So that's, that's one of the key things. You need, you, the biggest challenge in, in, in women's football is getting people through the turnstile. Mm -hmm. But after the hockey, after um, England won, they did, uh, UK Hockey did um, announce a load of new fixtures for further ahead and they all sold out straight away. Um, and that was because they announced them straight after that win. Mm. Um, and we don't generally have that in football. Mm. I mean, that's the kind of... How good are the clubs, Katie, in actually nurturing young talent in terms, you know, in the men's game, it's obviously almost gotten the other way now with the, with the hyper-competitive academy system. What about within the women's game? Are you looking at the clubs now and saying, well, OK, you're dealing with today, but actually your real role is to actually prepare for tomorrow? Um, I think there's two sort of different questions there. I think with the academy things are really good. Obviously, that's part of the licensing criteria now that you've got to have um, some sort of development pathway to get into the um, top tier. And I think that's... I think that's really, really important in that sense. But in terms of when you talk about laying the foundations for the future, I think one of the reassuring things, and this was what I wanted to say earlier, that um, after the 2015 World Cup, obviously we had the big explosion. And then after Euro 2017, it was uh, not on a similar scale, but it was still quite there, this um, profusion of interest. But then the interesting thing is, I think people were sort of getting caught up every time there's a World Cup. People get quite caught up in this narrative of, look at how healthy women's sport is, look at how great women's football is, look at the potential of it. And in reality, that obviously, any one that was kind of worked in women's football or studied it or looked into it properly, you can see that there are a lot of issues with um, sustainability, with finances, with getting people through the turnstiles, with distances that fans have to travel with, whether um, men's teams should have to subsidise a women's team, medical care, ambulances at games, there are so many different issues and I think the interesting thing now is that people are starting to interrogate those issues a little bit more and say, oh actually, hang on, is it that healthy or what can we do to make this better or is this right? Because in principle, you're thinking, no, it's not right because males and females, they don't, you know, you can't just have 
have you can't have less medical care or be less safe or get less whatever because you're female in principle but then obviously all the different financial concerns and infrastructural concerns that go alongside that I think we're in a position now where we have um, that debate and we are able to have it in quite a respectful way without suddenly thinking oh hang on the women's game is brilliant I think we are in a position now where the wider media sometimes say oh actually hang on and I think that's something that's going to be important after this World Cup is if we get distracted by oh the women's game is great but also longer term how can we solve these all the other issues around it yeah I suppose it's someone like myself I'd like to class myself as an educated observer <laughs> but not within the women's game but I look at those cases like Charlotte Kerr at Charlton a couple of weeks ago where where were the ambulances? Where was the oxygen? That is where the credibility gap is, isn't it? Yes, up to a point. But, I mean, the ambulance thing is interesting. There is no requirement outside of the Premier League and Wembley of having a player-specific ambulance anywhere. It's not mandated in the EFL. That's amazing. Yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot, of, a lot of the clubs will do it because these players are very valuable and expensive and you want to have them covered. But it's only mandatory in the Premier League and for Gandhi Wembley. And in terms of action, including the Safety Sports Grounds Act uh, and the later one after Popperwell, you only need an ambulance at all, i.e. for the fans, for everybody, if you're expecting a crowd over 5,000. Now, the reason the women's game in the country in WSL, we expect more than 5,000 people at the moment. Uh, we're talking sort of national league, sort of big national league games, you might be. So there's no requirement to have an ambulance on standby. I mean... The only thing is, there's a lot of matches being played up and down the country. You know, I played football for 20 years. We only ever saw an Amazon pitch for three times. They're not actually required that often. I mean, how, how, it depends how many ambulances you can have sitting around the football grounds for two and a half hours mm. and not being used elsewhere in a country that's already short of you know, ambulance care around the country. So there is that issue. I mean, obviously, a lot of these will be private ambulances, but then it comes down to funds, like a lot of stuff in the women's game. Mm. What about insurance? Because that's the one thing I think is a fundamental right for any athlete who's in a professional context, is to have the right insurance. Yeah, well, there's not much more you can add to that. It's a difficult one because you can understand now this is the worry with has the league professionalised too quickly perhaps because it's not part of the licensing criteria in the Super League to provide private medical insurance for players unlike in the EFL where it's part of the licensing in the Premier League, in Rugby League. I don't know like some people will follow Rugby League but it's part of the licensing criteria as well um, and you've got to kind of check that the further up the leagues you go and it's not part of the licensing criteria for the Super League because how expensive it is clubs are being quoted in the region of £40,000 a year to ensure the whole squad for the season and you're going to be thinking in clubs where there are a lot of them tightening the purse strings sometimes and or maybe not got the backing of a men's team are they going to be able to do that if that is a compulsory thing is that going to rule teams out are you going to end up with five teams in or instead of the 11 team league um, so it's a difficult one for them and it's, it's like fundamentally it's the same thing as the ambulances that in an ideal world you would like them all to have private medical insurance because it comes down to player welfare and um, you can't have different treatment just because you're female but in reality it's the funding around that and it's the issues of well of is it right to have teams like a Bristol or a Yeovil where they perhaps haven't got the money to do things like that in the same league as your Arsenal's, your Chelsea's, your Man City's who can just do it without batting an eyelid and they're the other questions around the way that the league has developed and the funding opportunities that teams have when they're not partnered to men's teams so it's a whole it's not just about athlete welfare it kind of fills down with a whole other issues about funding and structure and things like that so it's a difficult one but it's the kind of thing that you are thinking of you taking a league professionally though and you're taking it seriously then it's the sort of thing that should just be a basic requirement mm. another thing is are the players getting enough support as well because 
you know, no agent in the men's game would help a player sign for a club that didn't provide medical insurance. You know, it'd be in their contracts that they have mm. to, you know, mm. that would be written in. So why aren't agents of women's players, if they've got them, demanding that that is included as well? It should be a dual thing. A lot of cases, <laughs> club will say, we won't sign you. Exactly, well, yeah. This is a difficult thing as well. There's no kind of bargaining agreement because in the men's yeah. game, there's these, the consultancy committee with the PFA where they team up and they have negotiations and they have the negotiating power in the player power to kind of say, oh, yeah, we're not signing that contract, we don't like it because they've got the financial backing to do that as players, men's players. Where in the women's team, it's exactly the same as you just saying, and you're like, oh, well, fine, we will sign you. And there's less financial comfort and assurances for them to, you know, make a fuss about these kind of things. Mm. Yeah, I think one of the interesting aspects of the women's game is um, its ability to shine a light on, on social and cultural issues that maybe the men's game can't. Now, I'm just thinking in particular of the stories that you've been doing with the alleged abuse of the Afghanistan players. You know, the president has denied those allegations, but you've done some searing reporting on a very deep, basic human level in terms of telling those players' stories. Now, people listening to this or, or seeing it as professional journalists, they think, oh, well, you know, you're detached. Well, actually, you can't be detached from subject when you've got subject matter like that. Can you give us an insight into that story and the effect it has on you as an individual when you're reporting that type of story? Yeah, um, it's an interesting one because I had the contact with the, the then captain of the women's team about a year ago. I, you know, I'd done an interview with her. She was involved in um, breaking the record for the lowest altitude football match uh, with Equal Playing Field, a campaign for equal rights for women football. And so I had that connection. So it, w it was very easy for them to trust me um, because I'd already built up a bit of a relationship with them. And it's not easy to report on. It is difficult, uh, particularly that, you know, I, I had, I think three went into the article, but I did four victim interviews. Um, and particularly the first one, who's the, the main one of um, uh, of the piece, was, was very difficult to do. Um, and it was all through translation as well, which is hard because then it removes you a little bit from, mm. from it. Uh, it's hard to show empathy and understanding and explain why you're asking the question the way you are through a translator, which makes it uh, even harder in a way. Um, and, yeah, that removal is quite difficult. But it's also... That's massively overridden by how rewarding it is. I, I really care about about the impact that football can have uh, on society, that, that it's such a powerful tool that these women put, uh, you know, continue to play through these, these circumstances and continue to fight for the right to play even when they uh, have been forced to migrate and things um, because they fear for their lives in the country, they're still fighting to play football and organise football and women's football in Afghanistan because they see it as a as a tool for improving the conditions of women in society generally in the country. And, and that's what interests me. And at least one of the victims said at the end of the interview, you know, I was thanking her from, for opening up to me. She was thanking me because she said it's the first time she's felt hopeful uh, because... Obviously, one of the problems in a country like that is politically, it's mm. incomplete and utter chaos, and is there's, there's corruption, there's ethnic and political machinations all over the place that mean that there's there's nowhere for them to turn to, and that's when the media becomes powerful. When uh, the international media, in particular, is is when there's nowhere for them to report it. You know, I'd I'd much rather not have to 
the right detailed accounts of, of, of sexual and uh, physical and emotional abuse of players. I'd much rather there was a route that they could raise that properly, um, that it could go through the court system and it would be dealt with properly, but, but that doesn't exist. Um, and that's what is exciting about the social side of football journalism is that it can, it can change things like that. Yeah, and it's important, Kate. And, and, and you know, I see, you know, Glenn and I are... I think we call ourselves Fleet Street veterans, don't we, Glenn? Mm. But, um, you know, the nature of sports journalism is changing. And, you know, you, you embody that to a degree, Katie, because, you know, you're the first full-time women's football reporter for The Telegraph. You know, The Guardian give you great projection, Susie. Is there now an awareness within sports desks that you are providing an important and different service? I think so, yeah. I mean, I work obviously hiring two um, women's sports reporters now and then a women's sport editor as well. Um, and there was actually an incident, I think, over Christmas where um, they rang me up and they said, oh, are you finding this thing? And I said, oh, it's actually Monday or whatever. And they were like, oh, no, we haven't got any women's sport in the paper tomorrow. And that was uh, a moment when I was kind of like, oh, OK, you really are taking this seriously. And I think it's a really good, I can speak for the Telegraph, but a really good network of journalists and a really nice group. We all support each other, we all help each other out and the spreads that they devote and the space that they devote to women's, and not just women's football, but women's sport in general. Kate Rowan, who's done a lot of women's rugby, Pippa Field, um, Molly, who do, they do loads and loads of different things on the desk in terms of women's sport. And I think it is really valued and it's really um, supported and it's taken seriously. It's not just, they're never kind of like, oh, well, the readership figures are not good enough or is there an audience for this? They're like, oh, yeah, we'll take that. And I think that's really, really important. I think they're definitely doing their bit now, which I think is really, really exciting to be a part of that bit. Mm. Have you see a change? Yeah. Yes, I mean, uh, I remember having this debate. I mean, the Independent, we had a feeling, I was in the Independent, as you know, for 20 years, and to an extent, sometimes we gave the readers what they felt they should be reading rather than what they necessarily wanted to read. I mean, and when we had complaints, you know, a few years ago about lack of women's football coverage, I, said, I was happy, well, we never get any letters, we never get any emails, we, don't, we never get any phone calls saying there's not enough in the paper. We get sometimes we get phone calls saying there's too much in the paper, and that's when we've got hardly any. Mm. The things that really used to get impact is dropping racing cards. I can remember Peter Preston, though, coming to talk to me when I was at university, and the thing that got most letters at The Guardian was when they moved the crossword yeah. for, off the back page. So it's odd sometimes the things that do stir excitement. But, um, so, and therefore, I will say to people, if you want to see more on the paper, you have to make a fuss. You know, show there is a market, show there is demand. And it's interesting, I think, you know, to an extent, this is being driven partly from our side of the, the fence to people saying, if we put these stories out there, they are interesting people, and it starts to create some interest. But uh, there also, is also, though, some commercial pressures as well some um i think companies are coming around because sports always been a bit of a desert in terms of advertising it's basically beer cars you know a few things like that when you look at it as things linked to certain events perhaps and there is now i remember talking to one or well, the continental cup one of the reasons they sponsor football um are talking one of their marketing guys and they were saying uh women often make decisions about tires it's a safety issue in cars. Mm. Yeah, and therefore that's one of the reasons why they sponsored it. I think it's an interesting thing as well that in Anna Kessel's book, um, she talks about how a lot of brands want to sponsor women's sport. And it was a good will gesture, but it looks so much better to kind of be sponsoring women's sport and to be funding that part of thing. And I know a lot of people might object to the amount of coverage that women's football gets because it eclipses a lot of the coverage that the Football League um, might get. So on day-to-day, -day we will probably do more women's football than we do Football League. But then at the same time, you're kind of saying, have you got a moral... Or 
obligation to cover the women's game because the news channels are so saturated with men's Premier League and then you're looking at a game that has been banned in 1921 and has just been decimated and decimated until they legalised it again and the league has started to build back up and then you're looking at sports that represent 50% of the population. You need to make it normal to see people who look like you and for girls to see people who look like you and then you will have less issues when you see people that look like you, you will have fewer girls dropping out of sport during secondary school, you'll have fewer girls having body image issues in PE, things like that, because you normalise it and that's the thing that as well as you're talking about give people what they want but you also have that responsibility to set the standard and give them what not necessarily we should be reading but I think you you know you talk about half of the population here that are not represented in sports pages it's less than one percent and then now it's kind of growing and there's a bit of a, a turn now. Mm. But the bottom line is that the the competition needs credibility. Now, if we look at the WSL, is it improving in terms of depth and quality? The league going professional has improved the quality of of the of the league across the board because the teams are on a little bit more of an equal footing. You've still got the kind of top two or three, but the the teams below that have all upped their game, and I think you are seeing uh, the technical level improve massively. Plus, it means that you, for the first time ever, you've got players coming through from school straight into playing football um, and playing through that and not having to work on the side and playing through and that improves technical quality you know if you've got a player who's been playing from six seven eight who who never stops playing and is being honed they're going to be a better player than someone who say like Alex Scott in her day who is um, washing Arsenal men's kit to make ends meet the technical level of those players is going to improve massively and we're only just seeing the very, very first wave of those players start to filter in um, the Georgia Stanways and Eddie Roebucks of the world filter into first teams. And when the kind of waves of young players coming through are leading first teams, then we'll, we'll really see the full impact of that. Mm. Let's look at the, the title race, if we can. Chelsea made up eight points on Arsenal. They've got Birmingham next on the 27th of the, this month. Is it sort of getting back to the situation normal at Chelsea now? Because, you know, they had that little bit of a wobble at the start, didn't they? I think so, yeah. I don't know where anyone could work out what to put that down to. It was really strange for them to go so long without scoring. Um, and I think the reassuring thing for them is that the, despite the wobble that they had at the beginning, they might just stay in the Champions League fairly convincingly. And that's the thing for them now is what they're going to choose to prioritise because Emma Hayes was kind of quite straight batting questions about whether they're back in the title race now. And obviously it's not... Um, in their control I think she's been stressing that we want to focus on the Champions League because that's something that we can control and more likely to result in silverware from their perspective but I think it's good now that it's hot, hot up because for so long it looked like Arsenal were just going to turn it into a procession and there was no point in the rest of them turning up it's a really strange thing to cover where you were thinking oh how many have Arsenal got this week um, but it's also a shame from their point of view is that they've been hit by so many injuries mm. seven or eight first team players out now Beth Mead the latest one it was such a joy to watch in the first few weeks of the season, the hammerings that they were giving teams, the way that they were playing. For that to have sort of come to a premature end is really, really difficult to stomach. But at the same time, for them to be playing Man City on the final day, you're looking at a really, really exciting climax of the season, potentially, now that Man City are kind of in the driving seat. Mm. Where is that balance of power at the moment, do you think, uh, Glenn? Chelsea definitely got the best squad. Emma's always wanted basically two good players for every position. It's almost like the Leon thing where training is. But partly, I mean, I remember just saying, partly because cause so many games are one-sided, to then compete in Europe where you've got a much higher level of competition consistently. She wanted to make it so that training is very, very competitive. And to do that, you, have a, you need to have a very good squad, obviously. Yeah. So the idea is that basically if you've got 20, 20, 22 good players in your training session, 
than training is very competitive. I remember when Alex Morgan went to Lyon, she said one of the reasons was for the, for the training as much as anything. You're playing as international players every day in training. It's bound to improve your standard, uh, rather than sort of the one-sided, because the matches at Lyon obviously very one-sided. So Chelsea's definitely got the best squad. I think Arsenal, if everyone's fit, have the best had the best team in terms of the way they're playing, but they have got issues with depth. Um, and, and City are quite resilient. I mean, they go to Arsenal. They, they beat their murder on the season, didn't they? I think. And um, and what's interesting, of course, because only two teams get into the Champions League. You know, you have to keep going with second or third for that second place. Because I mean, Chelsea obviously can't guarantee winning the Champions League. No, no British team's done it since Arsenal. Hmm. Let's look at the City model. I noticed, you know, and you mentioned it earlier on, Glenn, that um, the US international Haley um, Mace went to mm. Melbourne City, which is part of that global City group. Do you see them replicating that in women's football, that sort of global enterprise? I, I don't think it's that clear-cut because Haley Mace's case is kind of very particular because Sky Blue is such an unattractive team to play for and that was who she was drafted to. So she was looking for a way to avoid having to go to that club. Um, so it's, it's not quite the same thing. Um, and there isn't quite the kind of sharing of players around those teams in the way that, in, in the way that there is um, in the men's game. They are looking clearly to build up kind of a franchise, a worldwide franchise in, in the same way because it's been so successful for them in the men's game and it is kind of selling Brandetti ads to the world, isn't it? And that's ultimately what they're about. Uh, it's a project to maintain a, a certain image uh, to the world for me and that's why they do it. Whether it reaps rewards internationally for women's football in in Manchester City's case it certainly has you know the money that they've put in has certainly thrown the game uh, up a level but what's it built on what's the uh, reasoning behind behind this investment and this uh, profile building is what eats at me a little bit well they've got a city it's better than anything they've got in the States so as the players going over mm. there, I mean, the Dean was saying that when she went, I mean, and, and others, yeah, uh, Carly Lloyd when she went. Yeah, what the whole setup for City women is better than anything in NWSL. Mm. And the obvious thing for them would be to buy Sky Blue. I think it's called Sky Blue to start with. It's based yeah. in near New York, where they've got a franchise, men's franchise already. It would seem to be obvious, from a branding point of view. Yeah, yeah. What about Liverpool, Katie? Do they need to reappraise the way they approach the women's game? I think so, yeah. I think the feeling is that at Liverpool, that the women's team after so many years of success obviously Matt doing really well there they've kind of become a little bit of an afterthought or it feels like that um, I think when Neil Redfern leaving after the first game of the season was a really telltale sign um, that things were something was wrong there and I think the things that you've heard about Chris Kirkland talking about and um, the flats that the players were going to live in with death traps and things like that they're not very good signs and it's a shame because of the amount of progress that they've had suddenly kind of being scaled back a little bit. It doesn't feel like the force it once was. Um, and I know that Vicky did really, really well when she took over as caretaker and suddenly that momentum's seeped out a little bit as well. So it's difficult for them You can that, that you can sort of see it not being the force that it once was and them not being, obviously, they were in the Champions League a few years ago and really flying the flag for women's football in England and now it feels like very much that they're caught in that kind of middle in fact pack or potentially further back rather than setting the pace with the Arsenal's and the Man City's and the Chelsea's which three or four years ago you would have expected them to. It'd be fascinating to know why because it's under the current ownership of the men's club that they suddenly took the whole big step mm. forward. They, they moved the women's game forward by bringing a lot of medical backup and so on um, and improving it enormously and won those two titles but by the end of it Matt Beer's wife was washing the kit. Mm. Uh, so suddenly after two years of winning championships it was like oh we're not interested anymore. Mm. 
but you know, Manchester, Manchester United is a polar opposite in a sense, yeah. isn't it? And that, they've got Arsenal in the Continental Cup uh, in the semi-final. Is that the key test for them? Oh, yeah, it's their first test against top-level WSL um, opposition. They are fighting for um, a place in that league next season and they will likely get it. Um, you know, they're, they're walking so many games by such massive margins in the Championship. They're a fully professional side in a semi-professional league at the moment. You know, they are, they're built for the Women's Super League and this is their first real test. How many of the players will make the cut between this season and next will be interesting to see what they do. Obviously, Casey Stoney has a big commitment to youth. She's worked with a lot of the players at um, uh, England youth levels and things. She knows a lot of the players, but whether she continues that when they move up is another thing. They're lucky in that Arsenal are struggling with injury and, you know, they could have a good chance. They're a very fast, fast, energetic team and Arsenal's back line has been shaky at, at best. Well, a senior United executive once told me women's football couldn't be monetized. You can't put a price on opportunity. Thanks for joining us here on the Football Writers Podcast. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.